So, Beto, I have a bunch of emails for you and me to read and answer on the podcast. What do you say, Beto? That sounds awesome. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I measure the size of waves. So this first email is from anonymous patron from Hawaii. She writes, My husband of two years recently came to me with a confession that he's found himself physically attracted to a new co-worker of his. He admits she's very flirtatious and that he reciprocates to her. He's gone to the bar with her and others a few times and has admitted to being touchy with her. He's told me that he is confused about the emotions that it is bringing up in him and that the guilt has brought him to tell me about it. Although I am grateful he came to me as soon as he did, I still feel as though this was an act of cheating and infidelity. How common does this happen in couples? Is this a red flag of future transgressions? Beto, what do you think? Well, I don't know how common it is. I, I, I do... S- I do sense that it's got to be common. It's got to be some of the oldest stories of humanity because you have uh, people that are in contact with other people that they're attracted to. And whether they're already in relationships or not, uh, some parts of that attraction happen almost autonomically in their heads. Uh, but, you know, de- depending on where their relationship is at and things like that, they might not ever act on it. But sometimes when, uh, you know, I, I sometimes feel like these things are... Um, like in little increments, but if one side sees the other side make a, a little teeny move, then they're encouraged to make a little teeny move. And at first it's just, well, I'm just saying something sort of flirtatious, not really, oh, they sort of said something flirtatious. Well, next time I'll make it a little more flirtatious. Oh, they just made it more flirtatious. And then the thing snowballs, and pretty soon you are uh, dancing lambada late at night with your coworker. So... Yeah, I, I, I venture to imagine that it is not uncommon for people to uh, find interest with those that they spend a lot of time with at work, because we spend most of our adult lives at work, uh, not necessarily at home. Um, and as far as like, you know, I, I commend the person for being honest. That's great. I think that's awesome. And now the big question is what to do, because if the other person is not comfortable with this, and the behavior continues, so that's certainly going to create an imbalance in the force. Is it a red flag? Do you think she should be like, uh-oh, this means bad things to come? Uh, did, 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 was there a mention of how long this relationship has been? The, they, They've been they married for two years? Oh, two years. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I'm the worst person to ask about this because I am a flirt. <laughs> so um, I... I do think that it could create problems if I'm encouraged by the fact that the person brought it up. If they had not brought it up and it kept going and then it was discovered not brought up, I think that would bode worse. I think the fact that it was brought up is a good sign. If uh, I guess this is the true test is how are they going to navigate this first bump? I think these things are super common, meaning uh, in relationships for, for people to have to figure out now they're committed to this relationship. Does that mean that they're not going to interact with other people the way that they used to? And what are the boundaries of the relationship? What what are they both comfortable with? So I don't know that it's a red flag, but it's a yellow flag. Interesting. Me. So I'm going to answer the questions in my long-winded way by first looking at the research. 
So you're asking, you know, is how common does this happen in couples? Well, if the question is how common is infidelity, I can answer that question, but meaning sexual infidelity. But how often does flirtation happen where there's some touchy vibes at a bar after work? Uh, I don't know because that'd be a hard thing to research and and all the research that I've seen, uh, I didn't see any in that you know, angle. And this is one of the areas that I've actually looked into a number of times in the, the literature. Also, you are looking for self-report. You're, you have to ask people, how many times have you cheated on your spouse? Or how many times have you been cheated on? Because th- no one is walking around in bars and trying to determine, okay, that person's being touchy. Which one of them is in a relationship? You know, there's just no way. So everything is based on self-report. So all of our infidelity research is based on self-report. So it's just impossible to know. You know, there are things in our natural world that we can study, like what's the average height of the American? Well, you just grab a sample of a bunch of Americans and, you know, and yeah. you, you measure how, how tall they are. And you can say within a certain error bar range, the average American is X height. So that, so that's I, an objective the, measure. The analogy that comes to mind is if you were measuring the average American height by sending a notice to the participants and saying, hey, without using any measuring tools, t- and just tell me approximately how tall you think you might be. <laughs> right. And it would be something like, well, I'm pretty tall. And then you just write tall. down pretty tall. Okay. <laughs> so we just don't know is the thing. We We really don't know by the nature of the question – how frequent it is that people cheat and particularly how frequent flirting happens. But if we look at research, they it's often reported between ranges of, you know, any lifetime prevalence rate. So like for anyone to have cheated sig- significantly on a partner can range anywhere from 20% to 75%. That's yeah. a range. Yeah. Because again, and there's lots of research asking this question from various different angles, and there's just a wide range. Now, what do we call you know cheating? Do because a lot of people wouldn't necessarily if you know if if your husband, anonymous patron from Hawaii, were to answer a survey five years from now, and he didn't have any other transgressions, uh, they asked him you know have you cheated in the past? He'd probably say no. He'd probably say no. I haven't. I didn't cheat. And even if you were standing right by him, you're like, well, what about that time when you're flirting with that woman at work? He's like, well, I didn't cheat on you. I, I stopped myself before I cheated. You know, I, <laughs> I, was, I was flirting. And who knows? But the point is, is right. that where do you draw the line, blah, blah, blah. But probably here's my take on – because I – Berta, you and I have done a number of deep dives on infidelity over the years because it's a frequent yeah. topic. And so I've looked into the research a number of times. And here's my probably – based on what I understand about humans and about the research, is that nearly everyone has cheated to some extent at some point in their life, especially if we count small infractions. Now, if we're going to count flirting, I would say 99% of people at some point in their life have done something along those lines. So the... So your first question is, how common does this happen? I would say everyone probably has a moment like this at some point in their life. Now, in any given relationship, it looks as though about a third of current relationships 
of any length, whether it's a month or, you know, 20, 50 years, about a third of current relationships, based on what I my take on the research, has some significant infidelity moment in the past with either partner. So this could be, you know, full-on sexual affair that was three years long, or it could be one night where you got really drunk and you kissed your ex-boyfriend or something. You know, you made out with him for like 30 seconds and it was a kind of a bad moment in the marriage, but you definitely didn't have permission to have a dalliance and and you just chalked it up to being, my God, I was drunk and he tricked me and that was a big mistake and I'm never going to do it again. I would say about a third of any current relationship one at least one of the pers- people has something most of us would categorize as like, yep, that was infidelity. <laughs> you know, that was yeah. crossing definitely a line. That wasn't just flirting. That wasn't just talking for an hour with your ex girlfriend. You know, behind your spouse's back. That was like, oh my God, that was you know uncool. Un- probably shouldn't do that. So, like orgies don't count, right? Because those are social events. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure my partner was in there somewhere. I mean, there were so many people. <laughs> I mean, on average, on average, my my wife was in there somewhere. You know, I, I can't I can't say for sure. Um, but anyway, so it was dark. <laughs> so, um, honey, I was thinking about you the whole time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. So yeah, um, so about a third of people, third of relationships have had it. So that's a lot, you know. That's that's a lot. Yeah, it's a very normal thing. So, so you know, what what's the what's the commonality of it? I say it's very common. The difference is is that he told you about it. That yep. I would say anecdotally is extremely rare, <laughs> especially <laughs> for that. That I would say, as Berto was saying, is definitely a good sign that. He would be willing to do that. Now, what kind of good sign is it? Well, one is that he's trustworthy potentially. I don't know him, but it's a it's a tick mark in the column of he's trustworthy. Two, he felt guilty sufficiently right. enough that he felt like he needed to tell you. Three, if this happens again, he's greater than other people likely to tell you about it which gives you guys the opportunity to correct what caused it to begin with. And that's what I always want to tell people is that since inf- infidelity is so common, it, it it shouldn't be considered, oh, my God, I'm being screwed by a psychopath. <laughs> I need to break up with this person. Certainly, you're free to do that. And if it's a deal breaker for you, absolutely make it a deal breaker. That's fine. But – if we are going to look at just that behavior, and if everyone had it as a deal breaker, and everyone found out about it, by the way, then there probably would be like three marriages on this planet. <laughs> so we need a, another way of looking at it, which is the way that c- most couples therapists look at it, which is, look, do you want to give this a try? Because you could be, potentially, it's hard to say, stronger and more in love after recovery from the infidelity than before. Now, I'm not saying go out and cheat and then go to therapy to make your relationship stronger. I'm saying that when people drift apart and when people have issues, 
a lot of different bad things can happen, including infidelity. Also, people working too much or people drinking too much or people just not giving enough attention to the relationship or not wanting to have sex anymore or, you know, if the other person wants to have sex, this kind of thing. Um, just turning yourself off, acting like the other person doesn't matter. A lot of bad things can happen as the result of distance and and relationship isolation. And when we uh, realize, oh, my God, we have a problem on our hands, as infidelity will alert us to, it gives us an opportunity. It's a why in the road. We can decide to take the road of breaking up. We can decide to take the road of just becoming complacent to the problem, or we can take the road to improving our relationship and, and giving it a shot. And I'll tell you, I've worked with couples recovering from infidelity who are so much stronger afterwards. Now, again, I'm not recommending that you go through that. What I, I, guess, I guess what I'm recommending is if you – and I've worked with clients on this too. If you find yourself going down a road of infidelity, go to couples therapy right away. Because a lot of people, when they when they have these infidelity impulses, they're like, oh, I must be falling out of love with my spouse or I must be really in love with this other person. This other person must be the right one for me because that's what all the movies have us think, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, husband is being yelled at by his wife and his life is mundane. And then, you know, he meets this this free spirit and she like listens to him and you know, and and the the rom com is like, well, all of us as an audience, we want him to be with her. Leave the stuffy, you know, mean wife and go with the free spirit. You know, go with Barbara Streisand and get away from that stuffy actress from the seventies. You know, you that that's what it's compelling story. It's a story we tell ourselves all the time, like the hero's journey. It's just something we love to tell ourselves. It is almost never. What I just said, by the way, it almost <laughs> never works out that way. People who make those choices almost always are five years later in the exact same, if not worse spot, you know? So the issue is what I wish people would do is like, oh, I'm having impulses to cheat. What's wrong with our relationship and what's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. Because usually there's something wrong with you and the relationship. Not that you're immoral, but that you have traumas or some kind of issues that are lingering that need to be addressed right away. And the solution is not to dive head first into the infidelity, by the way. There are exceptions. You're being abused by your husband and you have an impulse to just have some love in your life. You know, there are some, you know, case by case basis. But anyway, so Berto, in a relationship, what are some of the risk factors to infidelity. So uh, by addressing anonymous patron's email, I think what she's asking is just like, you know, what should I do? Yeah. Um, so it's not what do we do about the infidelity that he committed? It's let's take an inventory of the relationship and what are the things that are worth looking at that might be present that she might need to improve? Yep. Uh, okay, so some risk factors that come to mind. One is uh, like distance, like if you're actually apart from the person you're supposed to be in a relationship with, like people that travel all the time or if they're, you know, in a long distance relationship. Yeah, well, and more sort of specifically is the distance will facilitate 
declining relationship satisfaction in general. Right, right. Right. So that's the broader sort of umbrella. It's like if the relationship satisfaction for one or both people is starting to plummet, then infidelity becomes a possible side effect of that. What else? Yep. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to define this as a category, but essentially like patterns, like if you're always, every Friday you have a happy hour with your coworkers, including some that are, you know, people you could feasibly be attracted to or flirt with or whatever. And it's just like, that's what you do every Friday and you drink and you get drunk. Uh, that's probably not, you know, depending on who you are, blah, blah. It could, it could lead to issues. Oh Yeah. Alcohol is a major risk factor to cheating. Yeah. Uh, it, people who have no inclination to cheat, if they're drunk enough, they might cheat. So yeah. alcohol use is definitely a thing. And the other thing that you're kind of touching on, which is found in the research, is that exposure to social norms that approve of it. So yeah. if you go out with a group of people from work and they're all like marriage-oriented and they only have right. a couple of drinks – that's one thing. But if you go out with a bunch of single people from work and inf- and like sexual – All the single ladies. All the single ladies. You know, sexual improprieties or activity is kind right. of norm. It's like, oh, you know, so-and-so is getting together with Laura from accounting, you know. Um, right. it, it can definitely affect things. So you want to look at the, the social group that, that you're in and – Sometimes for dudes, it's like hanging out with your high school buddies, you know, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. back in the day, you used to be free and, and fancy and, and it's hard to give up that, that sort of identity in your group. And so you just want to be careful with that. Um, other things are personality characteristics. That's a pretty big one, meaning that uh, it's a pretty broad one, which I'll get into later. Um, declining sexual satisfaction, obviously, and permissive attitudes about infidelity. So one easy thing to ask a patron is your husband is just to say like, so what do you think about infidelity? You know, just try to get a sense of, and I'm sure you already have, of how he sees what happens. Because if he's just like, um, not okay, you know, if he, I'm guessing that's how he feels about it because otherwise he yeah. probably wouldn't have told you. Um, okay. So I'm going to talk about the different types of infidelity, and I'm just going to rattle through them here. Uh, this is my sort of typology because I've seen a lot of different types of infidelity because we tend to look at infidelity of like, oh, he's a dog. You know, when, when a man cheats, it's usually like he's trying to get his cake and eat it too, you know. Right. And when a, when a woman cheats, it's like, oh, his hus- her husband must be an asshole, you know. Mm-hmm. And so these kinds of things are just like uh, – just drives me crazy. But anyway, so there's various different non-gendered uh, causes. One is that – People will cheat sometimes as an attachment protest, meaning a retaliation or revenge for attachment injury. Mm. Someone isn't, you know, you keep bidding for attachment with the person and the person, you know, rebuffs you frequently. And you're just like, well, screw them. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, have sex with someone else, that kind of thing. Um, And to a broader extent, passive aggression. If you have hidden anger in general, uh, people will sometimes express that anger through cheating. And I've seen that absolutely. Another is escape. Someone is just under massive amounts of stress, low self-esteem. Well, there's nothing more escapism 
oriented than a full-on infatuation sexual affair. I mean, it is mm-hmm. all-encompassing emotionally, physically, time-wise. And so uh, some people are just in such a bad way that – and they have no other way of trying to soothe themselves emotionally that they will use affairs in that way. Other people are hedging their bets. Uh, usually as their relationship is starting to come to an end or they believe it is, they're trying to say, well, if this one doesn't work out, I need to start getting other options going, that kind of thing. Um, it's like, you know, if, <laughs> if you're – if uh, you know fires are coming your way, you might start looking on Zillow for another house, that kind of thing. Um, Another is histrionic in that some people have histrionic personality and uh, due to their relational traumas, they need a lot of attention and so they might try to get attention from other people or they will have affairs to get attention from their current partner you know, or they'll flirt with other people to try to get attention from their current partner. Uh, another reason is low self-esteem and they believe that they're unworthy of a good relationship so they self-destruct because it's – if you're gonna, if your life is gonna go down the tubes, for some people it's it feels better to have power over that, and so some mm. people they'll cheat <laughs> as a way of self destroying, because it's like, well, at least I at least I chose to do it. I wasn't uh, helpless as my life went down the tubes. If someone's gonna crash my car. It's gonna be me. Damn it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's sort of that thing in movies where they're just like, well, you know, just shoot me, just shoot yeah. me. It's yeah. like I've always wondered, like, why would you? Like, what are you doing? Do it. Yeah, because I'm guessing the idea is that they are feeling powerless and it feels better to be in the driver's seat. You know, if, if they're going to shoot you, then it just feels better to be in the decision maker seat than the helpless right. seat. You know, the other is a lot of people have been sexually abused and sometimes people can get triggered, you know, like a predator will kind of pass their way and um, trigger an old re- sort of appease response in someone and they get, end up cheating as a, as a way of actually trying to avoid being abused because that's the old script that they had growing up. Oh, that makes sense. Another so like one they it, try to take control over that situation? Yeah. Well, okay. So, you know, you take a seven-year-old who's being sexually abused by their uncle well, when they're seven years old, they don't like that happening. They don't want it to happen. But they sometimes will just say, well, it's better if I just sort of go along with it, you know, or I just please the abuser because it will be over faster. And right. so you develop this itchy trigger finger or this knee-jerk reaction to predators that involves appeasement. And so when um, a, a predator-like person or a or someone comes along exhibiting predator behavior, like you're you go to you know for drinks after work with, and the creepy guy comes up to you and he's just like, hey, and puts his hand on your knee or something. Well, for a lot of people, that'll instantly trigger their complex PTSD, and they will go immediately to that appease mode that they went to when they were seven years old. It'll just be a neurological change, a shift. Interesting, and they will giggle and laugh and and even say the words like, yes, I want to have sex with you. But it's not real because uh, it's not real amongst their real selves because their trauma is just being triggered in the moment. It's very complex. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know who's to blame in the situation. It's just an unfortunate result of 
untreated sexual abuse trauma that you know we have in our society. Um, the solution to that is to help reduce stigma and help people get treatment for that so they don't have to be put in that position and also to uh, teach particularly men the signs of those kinds of things happening in other people and try not to go too fast with people. Anyway, another one is loneliness. A lot of people are lonely even within a relationship and they might long for a connection and they might feel like sex is the only way to get that. Another one is addiction is, you know, sometimes finding a sexual relationship will ease the pain temporarily because there's a lot of dopamine involved, especially for drinking the whole time. Anyway. Another one is narcissistic personality, entitlement, and the power of getting someone to love you. You know, some some people are so narcissistic that they need to be in a constant state of doing something superior. And one of the ways that some people will uh, resort to narcissistic people is like, I have the power to get people to have sex with me. And even if you're in a relationship, you'll still engage in that because you need a constant narcissistic supply. Mm. And the last one here is gender inferiority. And it's a way of proving that you're a man or a woman. So if you are um, a man and and you feel inferior as a man and the social construct of a man – then one of the solutions that society will say was bag a lot of babes, you know, don't let your wife pussy whip you, you know. (laughs) And so some men will engage in that as a way of trying to assert that. And women have their own version of that as well. Uh, Makes sense, Berta? Could could that be like if if they've lost a job or if they've lost social status in some way? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Because, you know, right, so you take a a guy who – a lot of stress, you know, loses a job, was told from a very early age that, you know, you got to provide and you're defined by your job and now you're fired and you're a loser. And, you know, the guy could be mildly suicidal and he's just looking for anything to make him feel okay. He can't resort to inner resources because no one gave him that growing up. And so he's frantic and he's just like, and, you know, let's say he's charismatic and good looking and he's just like, well, I'm going to lean into my strengths and I'm going to, I'm going to have sex with that woman or I'm going to call up an ex who I always know will be there for me and I'm going to have sex with her and I'll feel like at least I can bag a babe. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, So the last question you ask here is, you know, is it a red flag for future transgressions? Well, as as Britta was saying, it's hard to say. I mean, every situation is different. Based on your email, there's really no way to tell. There's some positive markers and some negative markers. The the thing you want to do is address your relationship and the love and the connection and the honesty and when – because when you – I mean I'll speak for myself. Um, When I feel very close to my wife and I value our relationship, there's really nothing that will come in between that. Like I I just don't – I don't – one, ha- if something did come my way, I wouldn't want to threaten my relationship with my wife. And two, when random stimuli come my way, it it just doesn't register with me, you know, yeah. because I'm like, well, I think my – I'm not open to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort yeah. of like if I'm full and I go to the grocery store, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, well – yeah, I, I, food. <laughs> I can take it or leave it. But yeah. if I'm starving, 
right? I need one of uh, all of these. Yeah, that's a Ritz. One of everything. That's a Ritz cracker right there. That's a good cracker. Um, so, so if you want everyone out there, if you want to, uh, if you're worried about infidelity, strengthening your relationship will probably reduce the risk. It's not going to eliminate the risk though, because the nature of human life, unless you put your spouse in a locked box in your house, is that you never know. And that's this, that's part of the leap of faith that you take when you engage in a committed, you know, monogamous relationship is that I'm just going to have to trust that this person is going to do what they're saying there. And I am going to build trust as time goes on. And as long as we keep talking and um, as long as, you know, our relationship is good, I'm, I'm just going to trust that that's going to happen. The other thing that I'll say is that um, when you actually – and this is anecdotal – when you talk to 22-year-olds about infidelity, they'll be like, deal breaker, deal breaker. Yeah. When you talk to 60-year-olds about infidelity, they're like, well, what are you going to do? You know? <laughs> Why is that? Well, because 60-year-olds know the deal. <laughs> they've been around. You know, They've had a bad stretch in their marriage where they thought about it or did it. And it didn't mean what they thought it meant when they were 22. When you're 22... And when you're on the internet, you believe infidelity means automatically your spouse is an abusive, narcissistic gaslighter. When you're 60, you're like, well, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. They've been to the circus. They've seen the strings. (laughs) They're like, yeah, I hear (laughs) you. And... And this relates to you and me, Berto, is that the longer and the deeper a friendship the greater likelihood there's going to be times when some major crap is going to go down and yep. you're you're going to be like he did what to me you know right. so you know the older you are the more you realize if every time a deal breaker happens you leave a relationship you're going to be alone i mean that's yeah. just that's just a fact if every time your 22 year old deal breakers happen to you now i'm sort of characterizing because there's plenty of 22-year-olds who actually don't have enough deal breakers, honestly. Sure. <laughs> but but infidelity is an opportunity in, for a lot of people. It's not necessarily like a dire situation. And take it from me who has worked with a lot of couples and a lot of individuals with infidelity issues. It's a red flag for something else. It's a indication that something is you know able to be healed and um, strengthened for the individual and for the relationship? Yeah, look, when I was twenty-two, if I, or a little younger, maybe, but right around that age, I had so many deal breakers in my mind that if, like, if I were to apply that, that's so ridiculous. But it was all because of self insecurity. You know, it wasn't. It was like just. It was a fear that, like, I shouldn't be loved, so any excuse I can to ruin something, I should have it. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, of course. I just looked at it like, like if, you don't, if you're not devoting all constant attention to me, then you're cheating on me. <laughs> right. And if you're cheating on me, then you don't really love me. Right. And, and this relationship is a farce. 
which could be true. I'm, you know, of course that can that could be true, yeah. but it also might not be true. Yeah. You know, especially when it comes to, eh, yeah, I got drunk after work and got a little flirty with someone. You know, this whole notion of well, true love that doesn't happen. It's like, well, you know, it depends on what we mean by love. Anyway. Well, let's take a break and let's answer more emails. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. All right. We're back from the break. So, Berto, if you were at an orgy and you wanted to find your wife, but you along the way as you're wading your way through the bodies, you want to convince everyone along the way to become a patron of the podcast, what would you say? Oh, Excuse me, I'm just trying to get. Oh, that's really impressive. Hey, by the way, if you um, you might want to check out this one podcast. It will tell you a lot. Oh, you don't need tips right now. Okay, fine. Oh, excuse me. Ooh, <laughs> that's a little wet there. But listen, um, it looks like you're having some issues. It might be psychological. You might want to become a bit. Oh, okay, you don't want to hear. It. Okay, fine, fine. Uh, ooh, <laughs> you rubbed yourself a little bit there against me. That's great. It's it's all good. It's all. Good. I'm just trying to find someone here. But, um, oh, did this make you feel uncomfortable? Oh, actually, that seems like you might benefit from some uh, talk therapy or to become a patron of the Psychology in Seattle podcast. Oh, and there's my wife. (laughs) (laughs) So good old patron Hallie wrote in. She is a super fan of the podcast, and she has her own podcast called Someday We'll All Be Dead. Oh, that's grim. Uh, she is a clinician and she talks about a lot of interesting things and she's a very good podcaster. She writes in and says, I just heard the term supernormal stimuli and there was even reference to research about it. And I was, and I became fascinated when I heard about it. Please discuss if you have time on one of the patron email podcast episodes. Okay. So Berto, do you know what supernormal stimulus is? I mean, no, I supernormal would mean above normal, like supernatural. Supernormal, so not normal, stimulus, uh, you know, but I have no idea what the context is. Yeah. So I'd never heard of it either, but it's something we talk about a lot. We just didn't know there was a term for it. So the short definition is that it's an exaggerated version of a stimulus for an animal. So, for example, um, birds... Uh, would so they'll do these experiments with birds well where they'll make a fake dummy uh, baby bird a chick that will have a wider mouth and will be redder in color and the parent birds will feed the dummy uh, and huh. and not the actual uh, live birds because oh, because the the you know the dummy is a super normal stimulus, meaning okay. it's a it's it's a stimulus that is exaggerated and designed to uh, cause behavior change. It sort of hacks into your brain, essentially, right? Right. Another one is that birds will sit on fake eggs instead of real eggs, and the fake eggs are larger and brighter colors. So it's like a donut. Exactly. Super normal stimulus. Exactly. (laughs) And I'll get into that. Another example from uh, other animals is butterflies will mate with a fake butterfly that has more defined markings instead of a real butterfly. Wow. Um, And we actually, one of the examples that's given uh, sometimes is the Venus statues. Have have you seen the Venus statues? 
No. So like um, ancient prehistory Venus stat. They call them Venus because <clears throat> it's just a female figure. I'm okay. guessing you've seen it, but so around the world, and I find this to be totally fascinating. Around the world, there are uh, figurines that were carved by humans that all generally look the same, and mm-hmm. they all have, and they call them Venus because it's of a female body, and essentially to describe it, you just have to Google a picture of it, but, uh, and we're talking like 30,000 years ago around the world, wow. where the breasts are very big, the belly is very big, the labia is very big, the thighs are very big, the 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 shins and the feet are very small, <laughs> and there's often no head, and the arms are very, you know, atrophied. <laughs> so it's basically like all labia, belly, and breasts, and nothing else is <laughs> sort of represented, you know? So Objectify much? <laughs> so the question is, why around the yeah. world is this a very common archaeological find? You know, why, why yeah. is this? And there, we can only speculate. And some people would speculate that it's because it accentuates female fer- fertility, essentially. You yeah. know, that, that that represents, you know, life to, to people around the world. Other people speculate that it's because women actually made these statues because when they look down at their body, that's what they would see. Because, you know, there, there aren't a lot of mirrors in the world back then or mm-hmm. ways to see yourself, right? So when you look down at your body, your breasts are right there. And so you, if you were to do a, a statue of yourself, you would think that your breasts are huge because those, those are the first things you see when you look down at your body and your feet would be very small and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but these are all just speculations. It's, it's just hard to know. But the point is, is that you could say it's a super normal stimuli because it might be an early version of pornography, you know, essentially. <laughs> um, okay. So you bring up junk food. And so this is often brought up as a human super normal stimuli um, designed to be more appealing than healthy food. It's designed to hack into our, uh, you know, urges. And it's supposed to resemble healthy food because, you know, back in the day, we were compelled to eat calories that were good for us. And right. so that meant that uh, when, you know, we'd eat food that was around, readily around us, which was mostly fibrous, uh, low-calorie, you know, foods. Yeah. But we also need salt and we also need fat and proteins. Those are not – those are harder to find. And – but – because they were harder to find, we evolved to crave them to a greater degree. Right. We, we, and sugar was hard to find. Like, I mean, yeah. sugar as in not, berries and not carbohydrates from veggies, but right, like fruit was was depending on your region, maybe not. Right. Not always there. Right. Veggies and grass, and, you know, and this sort of yeah. thing were just laying around, and so yeah. we evolved to not crave that because we're going to eat that anyway. Yeah. But we better ramp up the cravings for salt and fats and sugars because we need those, but they're harder to find. So then the supernormal stimuli comes along and junk food is designed for us. And then we only eat the junk food and we don't eat any of the fiber or the vegetables because we didn't 
evolve, you know, the yeah. the cravings for that. In the same way that the bird will feed the dummy that has a bigger mouth and brighter colors, <laughs> meanwhile its its offspring are dying because they're not being yeah. fed. So that kind of thing. Um, what other kind of supernormal stimuli can you think about for humans? I mean, you mentioned pornography, which is essentially, um, you know, an exaggerated version of sexuality for, you know, just quick pleasure, sort of. Um, another one would be uh, TV. <laughs> like, you know, for example, advertisements is a great example, right? It's fast. It's quick. It's lots of colors, lots of changing imagery, sounds and they're usually louder than the whatever else you're watching yeah well you could say media in general internet yeah you know all those things are super normal stimuli for sure um what else uh fireworks fireworks (laughs) it's Uh, like we like we like lights and different things and these are like on on steroids all over the sky and every color and loud bangs and it's like wow um what else is a super normal stimuli? Uh, bungee jumping, skydiving. Okay. okay, why? What's because you know we we um, we I I guess I'm not entirely sure why it was an advantage to feel a rush. <laughs> you would think that like feeling scared and feeling a rush wasn't actually necessarily good, but yeah, it that does is release. Kind of a- it is Chemicals. kind of a weird one. Yeah, it is kind yeah. of a weird one. I mean, there's a lot of speculations. One is is that when we took risks and survived it, other people, well, other people would see us do it and be impressed by us, you know, that we were brave and that we are strong enough to get close to the lion and then run away. And, and so there is we, clearly we a, something. We had a compulsion to, to do that evolutionary wise so that we could impress and get a mate essentially. Yeah. And there is something also like we've talked about this before like when you uh just do peekaboo with a baby right um there is this inherent like surprise factor of it was something scary but i survived ah right we see great about this. right we see all these things in kids by the way you know supernormal stimuli you know for for children but the question is why do we have that one? I mean, the, the, the sugars and the fats, I totally get. I mean, that one seems yeah. just obvious. Whenever we talk about evolutionary psychology as we are now, uh, that one just seems like, you know, readily apparent. Um, uh, but the, yeah, the bungee jumping one is just like, <laughs> you know, or horror movies, you know, like, right. what are we, what are we hacking there? Like, what Driving is... really fast in a car or yeah. doing a roller coaster. Yeah, you would think... That's true, right? You would think that there would be an evolutionary process where it's like, no, 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 you got to avoid risk because you don't want to die. And so, like, don't get close to an edge. If something's moving too fast, avoid it or something. But maybe what it is, okay, so there is definitely a couple of things. One, it was literally impossible for a million years of hominids to do something like bungee jump or go fast in a car. Literally impossible. So... Clearly, what we're hacking isn't something that they were able to do, and now it's still fun, right? <laughs> so maybe it is just about the chemicals, like you know the 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 fact that when you did have a close encounter, there are chemicals released that then maybe feel good afterwards to help with the whole resolution of the right. Thing. Right. That's the other speculation yeah. is that we are smart enough 
to n- know intellectually I'm not actually in danger right now. When I'm watching a horror movie, when I'm on, when I'm on a roller coaster, when I'm bungee jumping, I actually intellectually know that I'm, I'm safe, but it feels like I'm not safe. And when I'm done with it, I will feel all those endorphins that will be released. Because when you do have negative experiences, there's a response in the brain to help you regulate. And that can essentially you're getting a shot of heroin in your brain, you know? Yeah. So maybe there's also an, an aspect of play because, you know, we, we did evolve like many right. animals. You can see it like play and like yeah. playing as kids. Like if you're cubs and you're fighting, there is a danger. Well, you know, and there's some a play danger, right? Yeah. Play danger. Yeah, for sure. And you could, and we know why, Cubs will fight because it helps them yeah. to practice for the real deal. Yeah. So you could argue that we had reward centers set up to encourage us to practice a lot, you know. Um, and you could say that, well, knowing about hiding things that are hiding and how to respond to that, you know, is is needed <laughs> right. by everyone or something. That's why peekaboo is so good. But anyway, getting back to social media, um, you, you talked about how TV is very stimulating, but also – it is designed, you know, we are, we evolved to socialize. We evolved to, in the same way that we evolved to crave fats and sugars, we evolved to crave eye contact and closeness and security and interaction yep. and physical touch with other humans. And social media is designed to be more appealing than socializing in person. Right. And we all know the problems with that. Um, also, I was thinking about plastic surgery, for example. And extreme body shaping, mm. where you know working out a lot to have gigantic muscles, and um, and women having l- breast implants or butt implants or something. And, oh, and video games. <laughs> yeah, right. Tell me more. Um, yeah, just that. Like a video game is essentially maybe what we were talking about, like that play instinct. Uh, but it's safe. But it puts you like it gets your adrenaline going. So I guess maybe it's in the. Similar category. The the difference is that you are for sure aware that you are not in physical danger. Because when you are skydiving, part of you is actually like, oh, something might go wrong here. It it's really unlikely that there's a part of you that's that's consciously afraid when you're playing. I mean, maybe it's a really scary video game at late at night or something. But normally that's not the case. Yeah. And yet you feel the adrenaline. You still feel like, am I gonna make it through this level? Oh god. Yeah. Depends on the game though. The games that I play are I don't like adrenaline games. I don't like games p- potentially also because I pl- I usually list the last thing I do at night. C- currently, I'm playing Crusader Kings three. Yeah, have yeah, you ever played sure. any of the Crusader Kings games? No, you you told me about it. it sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, for those who know the series, Crusader King. I I tried to play Crusader Kings one when it came out years ago. I tried to play two, and I it just was so hard for me to understand how to use the interface because it's Mm. so clunky but crusader (laughs) kings 3 finally figured out a way to make the game so that i actually understand how to play it (laughs) for the first time and and it is um it is great and so the the types of games i play are more strategy based and so the the hack that it's doing on my brain is it feels like i'm accomplishing something so with Crusader Kings, I start out as a as a vassal in uh, in Ireland, a, you know, a small level baron uh, who is a landowner, but I'm you know very small. And then through intrigue and war and 
economics and passing laws and being popular and religion uh, in its you know it's history it's historically based you know it's it's not yeah. in fact you can't even change your name they give you names that are historically <laughs> accurate to the region oh, at the time awesome. which makes it kind of hard cuz you know Older names are like harder to remember, but anyway. Gilderforth. Your name is Gilderforth. Uh, yeah, really. But long names, you know, like yeah. with titles. Anyway, and I've uh, I've been playing this game for I don't know three weeks, and now I'm I'm the king of Ireland and also of most of Spain. <laughs> Whoa! And just it feels like I'm feels accomplishing good. something, but I'm just right. organizing a bunch of zeros and ones in a way that produce these certain signals you know and but it it does feel like accomplishing something and so a lot of the games that i play i uh, like the clicker games like cookie clicker and other kinds of games it just feels like you're accomplishing something when it's so hard to find concrete examples of accomplishing something and i find that when my life is actually accomplishing things i don't need these video games anymore that makes sense I think I talked about this the other day. I don't remember if it was with you in a different podcast or something, but uh, how we we must have uh, hominids at some point must have developed, and maybe even other animals to some extent, uh, some reward systems around uh, future planning, right? And we know that most of our brain is dedicated to planning, like to prognosticating the future, simulating the future, so that we're like, oh, okay, well, if I can simulate the future to a certain extent, now I can avoid dangers. I, and and then that evolved into much more complex planning where you were like, well, if I gather more beans or more whatever, I could survive the winter. And I, it's not inconceivable that there would be rewards associated with doing that properly. And that's the accomplishment. And so like we do, we have this innate sense of like, I need to do things. And it's it's also we don't die, but like the games are like making you feel like, okay, I gathered enough beans for winter. Now I can eat. I won't die of hunger. Right, exactly. And the video games hack into that, you know, the strategy ones and the the Minecraft of the world and all those kinds of games. Yeah. Uh, Now, totally relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, and that's okay as long as you know that's what it's doing to you. You know, it's like having a donut. When you have a donut, you're not like, "Yay, good nourishment," you know, necessarily, (laughs) right? And in the same way, when you're doing a game like Minecraft or Cookie Clicker, you're not like, yay, I'm actually accomplishing something, you know? Well, so, if you're a live streamer, you might be. <laughs> so, it, right. But, you know, for most of So that's okay. But be aware of it is the thing and know how these things are hacking the brain. Pornography is another example. Just because it's hacking the brain in a certain way, it's, an ex- it's a uh, super stimulus Supernormal yeah. stimulus doesn't mean we are like, oh, evil. Uh, it just means we're, you know, just be mindful of it and be self-reflective about what's happening. Uh, is it causing you to have an exaggerated point of view of sex? Is it causing self-shame? Is it causing lack of motivation to have sex with your in-person people? Is it creating an addiction? Is it making in-person sex unappealing to you? So, you know, just be mindful of that because – you know, the bird who is feeding the dummy and neglecting its own children, its own offspring, something bad is happening. You know, the super, you know, super normal stimulus is causing them to slowly kill their children. And, yeah. you know, so we have to be very aware of this just because something feels like 
it's a good idea or that it feels like we're accomplishing something or it feels good to us uh, does not mean that it is a good thing. The last super stimuli, a super normal stimuli that I thought of, I didn't see anyone writing about this, is sports. You know, the oh, speculation yeah. is that it we evolved to crave or to, I don't know, pay attention to war between pri- the different tribes, right? Yeah. When we encountered, uh, and you'll see this in other primates, in our closest cousins, chimpanzees and bonobos, both. Um, sometimes people will black and white that. They'll be like, well, chimps are very aggressive, and bonobos are like the hippies. And it's like, no, bonobos absolutely are aggressive um, when, at times, for sure. They're less aggressive, but they definitely are aggressive. And so we evolved from the same ancestor as they did. It stands to reason that we evolved some kind of... Uh, dopamine or motivation thing involved in uh, warring with rivals because those tribes that had an instinct for war survived more because they made sure that they kept their territory, made sure that other tribes didn't kill all of them. And so we have this instinct to uh, have a team and to fight against the other team and in the old days, we would literally go to war and kill each other. And in modern times, we have figured out a way to hack that through sports, which is probably a very good thing. <laughs> very good thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that people will erroneously believe is that there's more war today than in the past, which right. is empirically not true. And it's yeah. pretty easy to measure this because wars are very noticeable and written down in histories, you know, Uh, histories tend to remember wars. And so when you tabulate, you know, uh, per capita, especially, uh, you see a long stretch of basically zero war compared to war in the past since like 1955. Like the, the amount of people in wars and dying in wars is essentially zero when you compare it to the curve of deaths and involvement and affected populations prior to 1955, going back centuries, by the way. I mean, you should asterisk it with that. There are some unfortunate parts of this world that have not stopped the trend. But as a whole, when you look at the whole 7 billion, you're absolutely right. Right. and it's, it wasn't even just like the, the big wars. It was like constant, constant attacks, small attacks here, small attacks there, small right. inventions, invasions. Yeah, crazy. Right. <laughs> right, where two Native American tribes would every 20 years have a full-on war yeah. and enslave, you know, a quarter yeah. of the population of the, of the dominated group or something, you know, um, or uh, two feudal kingdoms in you know Bavaria would be in a war that lasted 35 years and killed you know half of the men aged between 15 and 35 you know like it was just regular it was just like something called the hundred year war yeah it was literally a hundred years right and so uh you know this notion that somehow the light you know the world is going down the tubes it's just it's just the opposite you know it, it if we can point to one thing that the world is better now than it was before. It is war per capita for sure. And we Uh, have sports to thank for it. (laughs) And and we might, you know, I hadn't really thought about it until Paige and Hallie suggested we talk about supernormous stimuli, but 
you know, a game. Well, you know, specifically soccer and the Olympic Games. <laughs> yeah, because you know you just see the fervor that goes on yeah. in these games, particularly you know World Cup, this kind of thing. Yeah, and it is between countries. That's right. You take that away, it's not like that fervor just disappears. Yeah. You know, clearly humans have a need for that fervor. You know what? You've opened my eyes with this because I'm usually pretty anti, like, sports sport rooting. No, not like I like sports, but I'm I'm usually not. I'm very turned off by. I'm gonna root for my team. Well, damn it. You know? well, you're you've been traumatized by warring groups in Bogota yeah. since you were a kid. You, you don't like any fervor for a group. Yeah, yeah, group fervor is dangerous in my book. But you make a, a good point, which is like I much would prefer for you to wear your 12 man thing and yell at the other side about how silly their scorers are, or whatever. That's much better than actually hurling javelins at each other. <laughs> and shout out to patron Tara. If you're listening, I'm really sorry about your Detroit Lions um, this year. Uh, okay, uh, let's read another email here. Anonymous patron from Norway. Uh, she writes in, I'm wondering what can cause someone to falsely accuse someone of either violence or rape and potentially ruin their life and send them to prison for something they did not do. Berto, what do you think? Jeez, that's a that's a that's a question and a half. Um, well, I I wonder the same thing. Like you hear these stories of uh, such and such was released today after being acquitted and serving. You know, they served thirty years in prison, and finally new evidence came to light. And I'm just like, oh my god! But a lot of those aren't necessarily. I mean, some of them might have been someone uh, being malicious. Some some of those have been a case of mistaken identity or they just, they found evidence, but it wasn't good evidence and they still convicted. And then until they had DNA thing or whatever. So I don't know if, yeah, I guess I'm puzzled. I don't know what it compels, what compels someone other than revenge. Like someone's a, a psychopath or someone's taking revenge or something that someone would make up a story to put someone in jail. Uh, and I do think that there's a misconception about people making up stories about sexual assault and sexual abuse like oh yeah there's people are always making up these stories i, I don't know that that's true right but um yeah. yeah exactly there there's this notion particularly among certain men's liberation groups or men's rights groups or something that will propagate this notion that there's this high prevalence or a you know significant percentage of allegations against men and sexual assault or sexual harassment that is completely false and made up by the woman because she knows she can get away with it. The fact is, is that the vast, vast majority of sexual assaults and sexual harassments don't get reported at all. The Mm -hmm. legit ones, you know, full on rapes, most of them never get reported to the authorities. Okay. So that's one thing. Uh, so you know, the, so that tells us that victims are not champing at the bit to to tell anyone about it. Yeah. So why would someone fake it? Okay, can it be faked? Sure, but the prevalence is very low. The other thing is is that when it is a false allegation, as Berto was saying, it in my anecdotal experience, it's usually a case of mistaken identity or a case of confusion. You know, you can 
have traumas that can make you believe something happened when it didn't. You know, you can have distorted experiences and uh, that can happen sometimes. So people just standing up and saying, you know what, I'm just going to flat out lie um, to the authorities. That is very rare. Um, Now, can someone tell their friends, oh, that guy, you know, he's a terrible person. He raped me or something. Yeah, that that might be a little bit more likely. Again, not very frequent. um, And reasons for that, obviously, getting attention or trying to take revenge on someone or trying to uh, make up for the fact that they feel like they're they've been humiliated with sex. You know, a common thing is, you know, it gets out that you had sex with someone and and everyone's calling you a slut. And then instead of incurring that bullying from other people, they're like, well, I was raped. You know, I didn't yeah. I didn't want to do it. So that's our fault for putting stigma on sex to begin with. I will say that there's probably been many cases uh, uh, that were triggered by racism where, uh, you know, black black right. men were actually accused um, 10, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago for something because it was racist. Well, how, <laughs> in what way racist? Scapegoat. Meaning like uh, they weren't at all guilty, but they found a scapegoat. Because but like they, in what mechanism, like what, what, tell me an example. Um. I don't know the actual cases. I know that. Um, well, make make one up because oh, just yeah, sure, saying sure, sure. it's racist doesn't tell us anything about like in what way, like what what oh like what like you know trying to protect because it was like a white kid that did it, and then you know they they protect that by accusing the 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 black janitor or something like that. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Uh, they also ask, let's say you have a client who says she has been violated in some serious way, but there's no evidence and she wants you to witness for her in court. What would you do in that situation? Do you have to believe her even if her story might be false? End of email. Um, to answer this question, I'll say one, if that happened to me, I would tell them I don't provide that service. I don't go to courts and provide witnessing, you know, for people that very occasionally clients will ask me to do things along these lines. And um, I'm now in the practice of telling new clients from day one, by the way, if you ever want me to do some kind of legal action or even sign a letter or something for you, just know that that's not what I do. I provide therapy. I don't provide assessments for you know, service animals on planes. I don't provide uh, assessments for whether or not you, sh- you should take time off work. Uh, that is not my profession. My profession is to heal and to provide therapy. And my profession, you know, I can do those things, but I don't want to. And, and if you want someone else to do that, you, you can absolutely just hire someone else because it's just not my it's not my thing. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't care to have expertise in that area because to do that, I need expertise. I need to actually... Right. Look up the laws and look, make sure I'm buttoned up around my ethical responsibilities. And if I am questioned, I have to have a way of defending myself. You know, I have to document all. You know, it's a it's a very specific service that I could learn how to do, but I just I just don't want to. Um, and I recommend therapists out there if you don't have expertise in this area that you have that that statement as well because you don't want to operate outside your competence and. A lot of novice therapists are asked stuff like this, and they don't know. They think, oh, I'm yeah. supposed to do this. Plus, you just feel bad, you know, if, if, if you want to 
help someone in court, you just feel like, oh, I should help because I, sh- you know, I should be there for them. It's like um, that's a professional service. You're not a friend. You know what I mean? <laughs> the second thing is, is the court wouldn't accept my testimony anyway <laughs> because I wasn't there. And the if the you know the fact that the client told me that she was assaulted is not evidence that she was assaulted. So, you know, the court wouldn't, ca- you know, the court wouldn't call me and, and never has, you know, come to court and tell us what this client says, because if your client, if she told you that she was raped, then boy, she must have really been raped. You know, there's just no court actually works. I thought you way. wouldn't even be able to disclose that or something. If the Unless client wanted me to. Oh, and, if the client wanted you to. Okay. And I said it was okay. And I thought it was okay. You know, that sort of thing. Um. So there's that. The other thing is, is this is based on this notion that therapy has to find the truth. And, and this is something that I have to beat out of a lot of my trainees, which is, you know, I think he's lying to me about stuff. And, I, you know, I'm really, you know, so I thought I caught him in this lie. And I'm like, why do you care? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. is that your job? Is it your job to catch your client lying? You know, what class did you take that said, one, it's your job, and two, you know how to detect if someone's lying? Like, there's no graduate class in therapy that teaches you anything about that. It doesn't matter if your client lies, if your client lies to you. If they want to lie to you, then they're just going to lie to you. Um, You know, if a client came to me and and was like, I was raped the other night, and I was like, you know, kind of skeptical about it. What's it to me? Like, it, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter to me. Now, if I heard her say, and I'm going to frame this other guy, and I, and I was like, hmm, I don't know about this one. I mean, unless I had a, a – if I, if I didn't have a good enough relationship, I'd just be like, okay, you know, what? I'm, it's not my job to get involved in that situation. I might ask the client, do you want me to – do you want to evaluate that decision? You know, if the client's like – not really. Then I'd be like, okay, because it's not my job to force therapy on other on people and and yeah. goals. There's this notion that somehow <laughs> therapists are supposed to, you know, catch people in sort of inconsistencies or something, and that is it's just not our job. Like in The Sopranos, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, well, so I I think of when I went to therapy and how good you know my therapist was at not being that way because there were so many times where I absolutely it wasn't that I was lying. I, um, I was either unaware or confused myself about what I was thinking, or I was maybe not disclosing everything, but you know, it wasn't like, I'm going to lie to my therapist. But at the same time, she could have certainly played Sherlock Holmes and like, oh, I'm going to catch him in inconsistencies. But that was never the approach. It was always uh, a lot more observational about how I was uh, manifesting physically. That That is something she did. She would say, you seem stressed. You seem tense. Like you, I notice your shoulders are scrunched up. What's going on? But it wasn't like, aha, and yet you said that, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you said to me this, but then you said that. <laughs> right. There's this notion, and I don't fault people for having that notion because that's the way therapy is effing portrayed in movies and TV. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. Like therapy, because, <laughs> you know, writers who have either no idea what therapy is or just are lazy – they will use therapists as a plot device because they want their character to be confronted. And so they'll create a scenario where, you know, vaguely resembles therapy, but is not therapy. Anyway, the other thing is that, yeah, occasionally it would be relevant lying. If I was working with a child or a teenager who lied a lot and their life was 
self-destructing because they were lying a lot. It was something I would talk with them about, but I would never say stop lying or something. I'd, I, I would try to address why they were lying in the first place, you know, what, what got them there. Um, and uh, I would only do that if they were cool talking about it. If they didn't want to talk about it, well, it's fine. You know, that's the wonderful liberty of being a therapist is I don't – it's not my job and it's counter-therapeutic to get kind of wrapped up in those power struggles that – so many other people get wrapped up in. It's just like, I feel like I'm being lied to. I must put an end to it. It's like therapy is so beyond that. It is so beyond am I being lied to or not? You know, it's so much deeper than that. Yep. Oh, another example that, you know, may not be by the book or whatever, but it was counterintuitive. Like when I watched Goodwill Hunting, my expectation of a normal movie would be that the therapist would be the one doing the aggressive confronting and then like trying to get him on the right track. You know what I mean? But the therapist in that movie, uh, um, what's his Robin name? Williams. Robin Williams. <clears throat> He's really more interested in talking to Will. And he only, you know, they do have that one dramatic scene where he tries to choke him, which I'm sure is not ethical, but, but that notwithstanding that, uh, no, no, it's, ethical. Isn't... it's called it's called choking therapy. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was someone in, you know, I think his name was is uh, a theorist in the 80s. I think his name was like Mr. T or something. And <laughs> he, pro- he proposed this idea that when, you know, someone isn't facing their fears, you you literally choke the fear <laughs> choke out of them. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But he wasn't trying to get him to, like, stay on the right track and go do your math and things like that. He was just trying, and so like the outcome of that therapy was actually not what the professor who hired Robin Williams in the first place wanted, uh, but it was healthier for for Will or whatever. I, I guess I got a little off track, but my my point with it with it was simply that um, I think that to your to your point, often we have this perception of the all knowing therapist, like with their beard, and they're just like, I'm going yeah. to catch him. And aha, right. I figured it out. Right, Here's exactly. your inconsistency. Yeah, and <laughs> Goodwill Hunting is one of the very few <clears throat> depictions of therapy in media that I actually get behind. And there's that scene where he literally chokes his client, uh, <laughs> almost, you know, potentially going down a road of killing his own client in, yeah. in session, unprovoked. I like, will end you. Yeah, M- Matt Damon was being a dick for sure, but he wasn't, you know, doing anything that, uh, you know, justified uh, choking him out. Now, you could argue that it was a good intervention because it worked because Matt Damon after that was like, oh, okay, this guy's real. He's authentic. I can trust him, you know. Um, he's not a fake person. And so you could argue that it was ethical because it worked in the end, you know, because the, the therapeutic relationship did benefit him and that was part of the development of their relationship. I don't recommend anyone do that, of course, but but there's that. All right, Berto, final word on today's email episode. I love these episodes because I, I get to learn so much and um, I... I made the mistake of going on, on the YouTube comments while well, you said, hey, you should go respond to some comments. But then I like rat holed into like a lot of comments that I was seeing on, on other videos too. Um, but it was actually kind of, it was fine because in the end, you know, there, there were some things that were negative. There, it, as you've encountered, it takes all kinds. Like there's all sorts of commenters out there. Uh, but what was interesting is the vast majority of the comments were positive. 
and it was like, you know, people finding usefulness in all this. And so I, I really appreciate this episode because it's real people asking us very real questions that affect their lives. And, you know, you give them professional advice. I try to inject my own ex experiences. You know, I don't have the professional advice, but I just like, I don't know, I've run into stuff like that before. And, and if it can help someone just by hearing it or be hearing it talked out loud, I think that's great. To be clear, uh, our lawyers are telling us that this isn't professional advice. This is, um, as Berto just said. As what Berto, I know, I, I didn't as, say professional. <laughs> yeah, you you did. go back on the tape. I didn't say professional. <laughs> yeah. is, uh, it is generalized education based on extremely limited information. So if you need professional yeah, advice. It's generalized education. That's what yeah, I said. Yeah, you, you go, to a, go to an actual professional. But yeah, um, along those lines, people out there, um, uh, comment below because I feel like you know, Berto's on the podcast frequently, and I feel like there's a lot of love going out there for Berto. So let's let's comment below if you have anything positive to Berto. This is this is your time. This is your op it, but this is on YouTube. Um, if you're not on YouTube, then then you can yeah. email us by going to. Um, well, actually, I'll just give you the direct email. You can oh no go to, go to the website and fill out the contact form. If you have something nice to say to Berto, or you want to tweet at Berto, if you're on Twitter, Psycho, well, check out my channel, Psycho Berto. Psycho Berto. But listen, I also noticed because there's a lot, as you know, there's a lot of fans that are new, meaning they're they're fans of a lot of the more recent videos you've been doing for the last few months, but they're new to the podcast format, and so some of them are rightfully so. Like, what the hell is going on? One of the comments that I thought was hilarious was, "It's like." Wait, he doesn't sound prepared at all. He's just giving his opinions. And so I, I nicely responded. It's like, yeah, that, that's the format when I'm on. I am the lay person giving my opinions. <laughs> oh, really? They're like, yeah. that guy didn't do his homework. Yeah, he's not a certified anything. I'm like, actually, I have a job. I've had the same job for a long time. But yeah. you're right. I just have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm not particularly prepared either on some of these episodes, but... But yeah, so, uh, usually you you propose something and then you go do some research and then you ask me questions and or you ask me to watch something. But my my whole point is actually to come here and just give my thoughts and and like the one thing I do try to insert is where I can personal experiences to try to say like oh you know I did kind of run into this or that or whatever because I've always felt that that is something that if I like what was my saying if um, I make mistakes so you don't have to. <laughs> Yeah, so people out there, I don't know if you can hear it, but I think Berto's feeling a little butthurt about some of the negative comments. No, man, and, I love it. Keep it coming. And so Keep you could going. you could unhurt his butt by commenting below and giving him some <laughs> some love uh, because I know there's a lot of love out there for you, Berto. Well, so. It was actually worse. One of the one of the comments um, they misinterpreted my my answer to something because like I was saying it was about the Jeffrey Epstein thing. And I was commenting about, oh, they didn't like that I laughed at one point in the episode. And I was like, I, I can't say 10 words without laughing. <laughs> and then I said something about how, uh, you know, what I really don't like is I don't like uh, groups piling on uh, an individual. And because uh, it was about cancel culture, I was like, that what I don't like is bullying, like a group bullying an individual. Like if you don't want something, if you want to like cancel your subscription or, or like not patronize something totally makes sense, blah, blah. And then the law should take care of individuals legally. But they thought I meant that I was saying you sh like commenting about the comment 
about me saying, you shouldn't bully me. You shouldn't, you know, like, like, so then they said like, oh, I, I thought someone else said, I thought this was a perfectly reasonable comment. I can't believe you took it this way. So I had to reply. I'm like, no, no, no. I was talking about like cancel culture. <laughs> Not you can feel free to comment on me. <laughs> so feel free to comment on me. You don't, if you don't like what I'm selling, you don't have to enjoy it. That's perfectly fine. By the way, my channel, which is teeny, but it's growing slowly. Uh, I have right now a, an abundance of love. I only have likes and nice comments. So I, I'm not feeling the hatred yet. So I need the hatred because I need to be balanced like the force. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> give, Berto is a very good masker of his own issues and he's good at sort of coping. But uh, Berto deserves love and he deserves praise. And he deserves, I only want real love. He deserves your appreciation. He deserves your, you know, your truth. If you like him and if you appreciate him, then uh, let's make, if you're on YouTube particularly, because it's very easy to comment on YouTube, make this comment section uh, a place for that. Um, but but seriously, though, like what I'm saying is, you're right. Like, I, oh, certainly I don't want to hear how terrible of a person I am and stuff all the time. But I do like... Like, this is how I am. I like hearing what you thought. Like, so if you thought that was too long or you did laugh at the wrong time, like, just say it. Like, that's totally great. Like, I, I want to hear that stuff. Um, it's the contempt and, and the uh, your, the personal attacks, you know. Yeah, like, just don't assume I'm here to hurt people. Yeah. I'm here to do what the best I can. Right. Give the benefit of the doubt. And, and, and you know, the bad comments of those sort ilk – they have to be new people because the, the, the thing oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's two things. One is is that you know once you get to know someone, you get to know them, and you, and and when yeah. they giggle in a weird place, you're like, well, I'm sure they didn't mean it the way that it kind of came across. I'm you know they're, they're, <laughs> you know, and you can always kind of tell. Like someone will comment below, and they'll be like, um, they'll be like, you know, how come? How I don't know. I can't come with a good example, but it I'll usually be like. Oh, that person must n not be a listener of the podcast because I've talked right. about that so many yeah. times in the opposite that the fact that they would even question that about me indicates they just have no idea who we yeah. are. So, so one is is that um, if anyone's giving a negative comment to you, they probably just don't really know you and understand you. The the other thing is is that anyone who doesn't like you or me probably stopped listening a long time ago. That was one of the things that I. I don't know if it's true or not, but it seemed rational to me uh, years ago as I started thinking about our audience, you know? Yeah. And I thought, man, you know, because I would send out surveys and I find that, man, our audience just really likes us. And there's this false notion that it's like, oh, we must be providing an awesome thing. Yeah. But then I started thinking about, like, well, really, this is a self-selected group of people that yeah. like us, you know? Like anyone who comes across us and is like, not for me, they just stop listening. And yeah. so they're not going to comment below. So anyway, right. the, the point is, is that, um, you know, send Berto love. He, he, he comes across like an arrogant, um, a-hole just joking. Uh, <laughs> that's a ringing endorsement. For <laughs> but he's just as insecure and, and just as needy of, of, uh, encouragement or appreciative, I should say of, of encouragement as anyone else. Uh -huh. Um, and so, you know, you know, let them know how you feel. Cause it's important. 
And and I know that a lot of people love you, Berto. Um, oh, I know that too. Yeah, I I have no qualms about this. I I really like. I appreciate you saying that. And I, I trust me. I'm a narcissist. I welcome. Give me the love. Show me the money. If I had been doing this when I was younger, I think it would be a lot harder. At this point in my life, I just don't. You know, it, it's the the Rick uh, the Rick quote. Actually, I don't want to say that because that could hurt people's feelings. But anyways, my point is, if you have valid criticism or thoughts, I I love hearing it. I may not agree with you, but that's fine. If you're gonna uh, attack personally. I don't, I'm not going to read it. Or if I read it, I'm just going to ignore it because it's not, it's not worth my time. Yeah. And I haven't seen those, by the way. I mean, like, there's just people that are a little confused because it's a, it's a different format than what some of the other videos they watch. And, uh, and it was only a few, like tons, tons of comments about enjoying the episode and blah, blah. So it really was not, not a problem. Yeah. I mean, just a little peek behind the curtain. So when we first started the podcast, all I wanted to do was record into a microphone and post it to an RSS feed that people would have on their podcast app. And I remember early on in the days, you're just like, well, we got to have a website. And I was like, but I don't want a website. That's, anno- <laughs> that's annoying to me. Like that mean, that's another thing that I have to monitor or right. make good or something. And then you're like, well, I'll do it. You know? And I was like, okay. So you made the first website and I kept having to update it. And it was a <laughs> shitty website, by the way. <laughs> 2008 or whatever but you know <laughs> yeah. it's good good enough and then um then uh other things start coming along like uh well youtube for example uh, i had a student actually who's now a co-worker of mine at the university and she said well you got to put it on youtube for for a lot of different because i that's where i listen to things on youtube i'm like but i don't want to put it on youtube it's just like a pain in the ass like it's another <laughs> chore that i have to do and by the way now you know 2020, the amount of chores that me and my wife have to do. I mean, there's so many different yeah, places. Yeah. Every episode has to go to so many different, I mean, there's so many places now on the internet. And so, you know, 2008, there, there wasn't as many places like Facebook yeah. was barely getting off the ground anyway. So when I first started putting it on, on, on YouTube, I was, I just was like, I'm going to put it on YouTube out of obligation, but I don't it's care right. about it's what's one happening. more output. It, yeah. Yeah, well, it was an annoying thing that I thought, well, if five people need me to do this, fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in the beginning, that's all that listened on YouTube because yeah. people weren't really on YouTube as much. And, you know, there's no video in blah, blah, blah. It's an hour and a half long. Who wants to listen to, you know, an audio only hour and a half long YouTube video? Anyway, mm-hmm. so I just sort of neglected the whole thing. And occasionally I would you know, there would be a comment. And since we didn't really have a fan base on YouTube, every, almost everyone who came across us and particularly people who commented were sort of the fly by night people who didn't know us, didn't give us the benefit of the doubt and had a lot of negative things to say, global generalizations about our personalities. Like you're an (laughs) idiot, read a book, you know, all these other kinds of things. And then, but you know, I was okay. And I'll put up with that. There were a couple of people who were nice, but it it wasn't very pleasant. And then, um, and then, and so you know, I've been so we've been on YouTube for twelve years, and so it was a long progression of this. And it was all me, by the way. Like no one else is helping me. Berto didn't even care. Berto probably didn't even know we were on YouTube for years. Oh, that's not true. I actually tried to get you to do short videos for YouTube, but you were not interested because yeah. I like that 
that I was a YouTube addict. I'm like, we should do short videos. You're like, ah, it's too much work, which it is. But, it is. Know. I mean, I think I said, Berto, if you want to do it, yeah, then yeah. go for it, man. I'm behind you. And you're like, no, it's too much work. And then I said, yeah. okay, then, you know, I'm not going to add that to my yeah. life as well. And to be clear, I actually did occasionally dip into that. Like I made a Bowen yeah. episode. Like it's like a 10 minute video and it, and it was one of our more, more popular videos, but it still yeah. was like minuscule popularity compared to like regular YouTube videos. You know what I mean? And yeah. So the amount of work that went into it is, you know, some people are made for YouTube and some people aren't anyway. So then, um, the next phase was we started making podcasts that were getting a little bit of traction like OJ Simpson or Elliot Roger or Michael Jackson, but Again, fly-by-night people and a lot of horrible comments about you and me that were just like, I thought, just so unfair. And, and you, if you're, if you're listening out there and you're not a content provider, you probably have no idea what we're talking about because there is something about the onslaught of the internet that can just be so emotionally (laughs) overwhelming. Anyway... So then eventually I was like, I'm just going to turn off all the comments because this is like, I can't sleep at night. I, I don't, I, are these people going to kill me? You know, like it, it was awful. I didn't turn off on all, but I would turn off on some. On the, ironically, the ones that would get a lot of comments, I would turn yeah. it off because whenever there was a lot of comments, it was all bad. Yeah. Anyway, so then I started making these reaction videos earlier this year. And Stacy was involved in the podcast at this point, and she was taking care of a lot of the comment mod- mod- moderating, you know, yeah. as a buffer between me and her. I would still read the comments, but she would kind of comb through them to see any trolls and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we started getting a, a following on YouTube, like an actual like group of right. fans that were only on YouTube. And they started to comment on the YouTube videos and and also kind of moderating it in a sense because as you upvote certain comments, they rise right. to the top. Whereas, you know, just even a year ago, we didn't have that. A year yeah. ago, it was the fly-by-night people and they would upvote right. and it would be like the most horrible comment would get <laughs> upvoted to the top. Because they were just interested in the topic. And so like they were like, oh, Michael Jackson. Oh. Yeah, and they're just angry at us because we said something, you know. So for, you know, the first 12 years of the podcast, the comments were either a negative or I just had to avoid it. And so when I started doing, we started getting popular on YouTube, I basically still had that policy on YouTube comments. I was basically still like, just don't even go there because you won't be able to sleep at night if you go through that. Just don't, just don't read it. You know what I mean? Like Stacey will tell you and she would if there was a theme to the comments, like, right. oh, people are commenting, you probably should know that, you know, you're annoying people with this and that. You probably should stop doing that. But, oh, okay. But then, kind of recently, I was getting a little curious and I started looking at the comments on the videos. Yeah. And I was blown away at how nice everyone was yeah. all of a sudden. It's very different. <laughs> I was like, what happened and the only thing i can think of is what i've been saying is like now we have like a loyal fan base on youtube that actually knows us one likes what we are offering and two gives us the benefit of the doubt 
You know, if yeah. we make a mistake, they don't pounce. They're just like, well, yeah, he Kirk said that stupid thing, but you know, he's a good guy and I'm not going to pounce, you know, you don't pounce on your friends when they make a mistake, yep. you know. But if someone walks by you at the supermarket and they do something bad, you pounce on them because you don't know anything other than that one bad thing. And by the way, I, I've been I've been shocked because twice it's happened, twice, where I saw a comment that was critical negative. Or, or negative towards me. And my first reaction is, because I'm unfortunately trained negatively on the internet, was to be sarcastic. <laughs> but then the person replied with like a very thoughtful, like, um, you know, I thought more about my comment. And I realized it must have come across really um, wrong or strong or whatever. Uh, and blah, blah, blah. And then like, you know, with a fair criticism or something. Like, but just like a really thoughtful comment. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really gives you hope in humanity and yeah and and so now i'm guessing there are still bad comments but the positive ones are being upvoted so much that the first 20 comments are either i'm not necessarily looking for positive positive or nice what i'm looking for is just not destroying my (laughs) self-esteem you know (laughs) or uh not making me feel like I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, that would literally happen. When I would read YouTube comments, there were times when I'm like, okay, I give up. If, <laughs> if, if what I'm doing is causing that much anger, then why am I doing this? You know, um, like there are plenty of videos where the, the only comments I see, there's neutral, there's commenting on it. You know, they're just going like, oh yeah, that made me think of this. You know, they're not praising me. They're just, they're just sort of participating in the conversation. And, and that's great. As well, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'm not talking, I'm not saying praise or sort yeah. of positivity yeah. is what I'm, I'm just looking for like normal discourse or something. And, and it's happening now and it makes me so happy. And you know, another thing that's happening, Berto, and maybe you're listening out there if you're that, if you're one of these people, is some people are going through episodes like this one where we talk about a lot of different things and they're providing, you know, hyperlinks to the time code of when we start yep. talking about that topic. And yeah. when I come across those, I actually will pin it to the top because, it, you know, it is quite a service. Yeah. And by the way, people will say, how come you don't do that? Again, it's just another goddamn chore. And if it's I do, lot. if I yeah. do all the chores that people want me to do, uh, I don't, I just can't, you know? And, and, and so I've just drawn the line with that one. I just, Look, I'm just, just like, a- a I microcosm, which I know I'm preaching to the choir with you. Like last night, I recorded a 45-minute video. Oh, and on what? Uh, same thing, just like on my YouTube channel. I know, but oh, on, on what topic? topic? <laughs> <laughs> on what? It's called YouTube. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> um, last same, night it same was thing, a, YouTube, yeah. You know. Last night, it was about free will. Oh, okay. And um, on anyways, Psych- uh, Psychoberto, the channel. Psychoberto, yeah. So I, it was 45 minutes. And, you know, technically, I, I don't cut, you know, I just talked. But there were a couple moments that, uh, like, my phone rang or something. So I had to, like, uh, I had to make a mental note. I got to do this thing. Well, you would think then, you know, and I have this burly fast machine, so it should be fast. I think I was done recording at 12 midnight. And I thought, okay, I think by 1230, I'll probably have it posted and everything. I, I went to bed at, like, 145 because there were so many issues 
randomly, just random issues. It wasn't like, um, you know, I, the first time I, I, I made the video, uh, I burned it down. I forgot about the one part where the phone rang. So I was like, oh, God damn it. So I got to go back, re-edit it. Then all of a sudden, my, uh, my mastering was acting funny. So like the volume was not right. And so like I had to deal with that. Um, and then I had to make a thumbnail. And it's like, so everything takes time. And I know, again, I'm preaching to the choir because you do it like all the time. But I'm trying to do it at the end of the day after I've already worked all day and, and, and just like I'm right. tired. Right. So and, then imagine on top of that, someone's like, can you please catalog right. every right. chapter in this conversation? You're going to yeah. be like, you know what? No. I wish I could. Yeah. I, I, I just, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> but but anyway, for so, people yeah. that do it, um, man, do I love it. And I, yeah. and I try to catch it fast enough so it can be a public service for people, you know, because, you know, someone's w- watching and they know how to do that, you know, hyperlink to the time code thing pretty easily, then, uh, you know. That's great. Pretty easy. Look, about the, about the real detractors, the real nasty, toxic individuals out there that make comments, my Rick quote from, from Rick and Morty is, uh, your booze mean nothing to me. I've seen what makes you cheer. <laughs> and it's perfect because it's like, I don't care about your booze. Like, you don't even like what I would like, so whatever. But about the people that have actual, you know, comments. Or, and I, I made this comment the other day. I said, oh, you absolutely, you don't have to like my shtick, you know, or whatever. I didn't say that. But um, I do what I do. And I, I've been doing it for many years with you. Uh, so I'm okay if, like, if someone doesn't like what I say or whatever. Totally cool. Right. Uh, like you're saying, as long as it's not personal attacks, I don't care. And if it is personal attacks, I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> well, I don't care. <laughs> like, yes. Don't... Yes. But let me add an asterisk to that. So when I, you know, I'm a huge podcast consumer and a huge YouTube consumer. Like my things are yeah. podcast, YouTube and Reddit. I don't go to right. Twitter. I don't go to Facebook so much anymore. I never go on Instagram. We have an Instagram, but I don't like peruse Instagram. And when I come across a podcast, a new podcast, or even a podcast episode, or a YouTube video, or a Reddit post that I'm not jazzed about, or a comment I'm not jazzed about, I just move on with my life. There are <laughs> there are hundreds of things on a daily basis that I look at, and I'm like, nah, that was kind of dumb, or I don't think that phrase. I'm just like, nah, you know, I'm going to you know, quit while I'm ahead on this YouTube video. I'm moving on, you know? Um or even, you know, there's this one guy I was watching, um, some YouTuber, he talks about technology, and he, he had one video about how black people today, and he's an Asian American, which kind of confused me, but he was like trashing on Black Lives Matter, and, and he literally said the phrase, black people should appreciate what they have these days, or something like that. It was something oh just God. like, I was just, I, I mean, yeah, I rolled my <laughs> eyes. But I just moved on with my life. I just, I yeah. now you could argue social justice would compel me to say something, but I thought, well, and I so I looked in the comment section cause to see if someone blasts him for that, but I, I saw clearly his audience Ugh. appreciates what he has to say. Yeah, and so I was like, Ugh, there's no point in that. I didn't downvote him. I didn't comment. I just moved on with my life, not for me, you know. And so when yeah. people come across me or you or a combination of us and it's not for them i'm guessing 99.9% of people are just like mm, not for me moving on yeah. with there there's a billion things not for me in yeah. this life i don't have to put <laughs> these people down every time i come across them you know what i mean 
There yeah. are so many things that are not for everyone. But it's the people who take the time to tear you down, you know, to make you, to tr- you know, you can tell they're trying to make you feel bad about yourself, that it gets under your skin, you know, like, like uh, for you, Berto, I, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm skeptical about your Rick uh, and Rick, for that matter. I'm skepti- skeptical about his ability to protect himself from this sort of thing. <laughs> I, maybe that's projection, you know, from me to you. But you know, I'll, I trust you, kind of. But I also am like, you know, it, we all want acceptance, and we all want to not be someone else's—I uh, don't know—object of hatred or object of criticism or something. You know, again, there's nothing right. wrong with someone not liking us because uh, that's expected, of course. Sure. And you know, that's what I've always said is like. Whenever anyone asks me about, you know, oh, you do a podcast, you know, I'll be like, they'll be like, oh, you know, um, I'll have to check it out. And I say, uh, so my podcast, 99.9% of people hate it, but I only need to please a small percentage of the internet to have thousands of fans. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the fact, so the chance that you, my friend or my acquaintance at work happens to be one of those people that this that my podcast appeals to is actually pretty slim so (laughs) so i so you know feel free to listen to it but in all likelihood it's not going to be for you you know um and that's okay but it's the it's the the lack of social skills or the lack of empathy or the this notion that like people who are on the internet and providing content have uh, an iron will of of self-esteem is is i find to just be I don't know, un- inhuman. That I agree with. So as an example, I get on the Flat Earthers Facebook group and I usually make sarcastic comments about their posts. Oftentimes, some of the supporters, and I really can't tell, it seems to me like they're being legit. They try to provide like, you know, evidence or whatever. And they like, and they oftentimes will say like, you're a moron. You know nothing about science. Uh, that's like me, you know, playing with a little toddler and the toddler's like slapping my hand and like it, Well, in that you situation, know? you're literally the troll. Yeah. <laughs> so you you are clearly doing it to right. invite it. Now, if if that were the case, like if I posted a an episode and was trying to provoke say say I, you know, there's a apparently on the internet a whole Michael Jackson sort of thing. And let's say I posted an episode and I was just trying to provoke, you know, people to negatively comment about me, then I'd feel better about it because I'd be like, well, I'm inviting it. Every episode that I produce and post, I'm actually trying to provide content and commentary or usefulness or something. I'm trying to enhance people's lives. <laughs> you know, I'm right. And, 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 and <laughs> I'm putting my heart and soul into it most of the time, if not all the time, to some extent. And then to just be torn down, you know. I don't know. Am, well, am, I, am, am I just being too sensitive? No, no. I'm well. You might be, but I, I, I get, I get where you're coming from, and I don't not feel those feelings. Like obviously, but like, I, at one point, I made a video about SpaceX. Like when you know, I made a reaction video, and one of the comments was someone saying, "This guy is an idiot who knows nothing about space." The blue lights. You know, I had to reply. I liked it. And I said, yes, clearly you've identified the idiot. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, so that stuff, 
that just rolls over me. Be like water, my friend. The ones that do get to me a little more, but again, I'm still... Uh, so I hear you, and I, I guess you're right. Overall, let's encourage positivity. But the ones that get to me a little bit more are if it's like... Well, it's not just not positivity, tr- you know. it's empathy. So Empathy, I, yeah. Like, imagine it was you who spent hours and hours trying to provide content so that people would enjoy it. Right. Just to, Just feel, and they're a human being, just like you. Just imagine that that's what's happening. Right. You know, they're <laughs> fragile, they're putting effort... They're not impervious. They're not a, you know, some kind of idea. You know, they're not an idea. You know, I think we we think sort of famous people or you know YouTubers or are an idea rather than human. Like Kim Kardashian is an idea. She's not a human being. Right. She, you know, she, Donald Trump is an idea. He's not a human. You know, there's no way he could possibly be a human being. And so, uh, just think. You know. Not only me, obviously, but everyone. Everyone that is on the internet, particularly small people like me and Birdo, you know, we're we're tiny. You know, we don't have a team of handlers who buffer us from the world. You know what I mean? Like we're we're interfacing directly. You know, when you email us, it goes directly into my email box, like my personal email box, <laughs> and and so uh, it just keep all that in mind and other podcasters as well because I I personally know bigger podcasters than me and they are just as if not more sensitive than I am sure sure all right but and that wasn't my point (laughs) my point is is that say nice things to Birdo because I feel like uh, there isn't a lot of opportunities for people to kind of chime in on Birdo and his contribution. And so do that below. <laughs> if I were listening to this, I would then go comment and say, I see that you went running to daddy. Okay, well, now I'm really going to troll you. <laughs> <laughs> Tattletale. That does it for that very meandering ending to an episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 